2: Hour number two is underway now at 9 minutes past 10 o'clock. <clears throat> Thank you so much for joining us on AM 1420. The answer, it's the 30th morning this Wednesday of the 10th month of the year of our Lord, 2019. So uh, Adam Schiff, the pencil neck in charge of the House Intelligence Committee, is now the defense attorney for witnesses appearing before said committee, while also being the prosecutor trying to hang Donald Trump from a Navy yard arm. That is essentially what we are finding out, and what geo representatives GOP rather representatives reported yesterday uh, after the testimony of Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, the latest current or former Trump administration official to come before Congress in relation to this phone call that is absolutely pointless because the phone call transcript has been released so uh, republican uh, um, Representatives including Devin Nunez, Steve Scalise, and Jim Jordan told reporters what was going on during that deposition. That Schiff shut down a a Republican line of questioning during their hour of conversation with Alexander Vindman. When we asked Vindman, who he spoke to after important events in July, Adam Schiff says, no, 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 we're not going to let him answer that question. Wait a minute. Are you his defense attorney? I'm gonna, I'm gonna offer something here. I'm gonna take a phone call here in a second too. But I'm gonna offer something here. I'm gonna offer something that I think Jim Jordan suggested in one of his comments. Again, he's going before every camera he can find to try to bring all of this information to the, to the uh, public's, um, uh, you know, public light because they're trying to keep this all cloaked in darkness in the basement of the Capitol building. But Jim Jordan said something in one of his um, uh, impromptu press conferences that I think really, really speaks volumes. And I'm going to let you hear it for yourself, and then we'll talk about it. Apologies. Hold facts. on a second. Let's get this uh, loud enough for you to hear. Here we go.
3: There are four fundamental facts that have never changed. Never changed. Mr. binman is not the first one we've talked to who has been on the call. We've heard from President Trump and President Zelensky. We got the transcript. Both President Trump and President Zelensky said no conditions, no pressure, no pushing, no quid pro quo. We've got the transcript that shows that. We know the Ukrainians knew, did not know at the time of the call that aid had been withheld. And tell me what action President Zelensky or the Ukrainians took to get the aid turned back on. Did he do a press conference? Did he issue a statement? Did he say he was going to investigate and do certain things? None of that happened. Those four facts have never changed. Even though you got all this stuff that Adam Schiff wants to talk about and leak from these deposits positions these are all just that that's all it is none of the basic things have ever changed
2: nothing has changed those four facts are indisputable now that's part a or part one however you want to do this here is part two jim jordan talking about adam schiff stopping um, lieutenant colonel vindman from answering a question of the republicans listen
3: the idea that we want to know um, who this individual may have communicated with, that's important information. And the idea that when, during our hour, our counsel is asking questions and Adam Schiff tells the witness not to answer our questions is completely ridiculous. And it's, it's why this should be in public.
2: It's why this should be in public. There's no question about that. And then number three, Jim Jordan talking about um, uh, the uh, the witness himself and suggesting, at least this is what I heard, suggesting that maybe... We have found the whistleblower. Maybe, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman.
3: Chairman Schiff has prevented the witness from answering certain questions we have during the deposition. Um, you know, one of the things you do in these depositions is you ask the basics: who, what, when, where, why. You ask those questions. When we asked the whistleblower, what?
2: Did anybody else catch that?
3: I asked those questions. When we asked the whistleblower who he spoke to after important events in July, Adam Schiff says, no, 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 we're not going to let him answer that question.
2: I'm just saying. I'm not saying, but I'm just saying. Seriously. Was that a slip? Was that a misstatement? Or was that a revelation that... Jim Jordan wanted us to
3: go. Doing these depositions is you ask the basics. Who, what, when, where, why. He ask those questions. When we asked the whistleblower who he spoke to after important events in July, Adam Schiff says, no, 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 we're not going to let him answer that question.
2: Jim Jordan referred to Lieutenant Colonel Vindman as the whistleblower. Is that just a slip, like I said, or was that a revelation? Is that something that we can actually say, oh, my goodness, now we know. Now we know who the whistleblower was. Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, and that's why the left and why the Democrats have been so protective of him against any criticism that may have been levied against him prior to the testimony yesterday after his initial opening statement was released. Is this the whistleblower? My second question would be, if this is the first of all, as it pertains to criticism of him, you can't say that about him, he's a decorated military officer. That's that's what they're saying. Min is a lieutenant colonel in the United States military. He's a war hero. You can't question him, really. anybody care to take a look at the medals on the chest of of uh, of uh, Michael Flynn, General Flynn? Anyone want to take a look at his war record? Anyone want to take a look at his military history? Tell me you're not allowed to be critical of a member of the United States military. You're not criticizing the military service, you're criticizing their actions after. And Michael Flynn, by the way, was railroaded, that that's another story for another time. But the point is, as far as defending Vindman, um, the idea that this is the whistleblower, his presence in this deposition is, is almost wholly irrelevant because of the existence of the transcript. We don't need a whistleblower saying, I heard something on the call that really, really alarmed me. Let's hold hearings about that. If that's all we had, then maybe we got to bring them forth. This is what I heard. This is what I heard. This is what. Maybe you got to do that if we didn't have the transcript. But since President Trump released the transcript, word for word, between himself and Zelensky, everybody else who's testifying about what they thought it meant is irrelevant. It's a question of policy. What about our foreign policy vis-a-vis U- Ukraine? Do we agree with it? Do we disagree with it? It is not in any way, shape, or form about an illegality, about high crimes and misdemeanors. All right, John and Chardon is next. Hi, John, you're on the air. Go ahead.
4: Hey, morning, Bob. The radical left Democrats, uh, but I repeat myself as the great Peter Kirshenow would say.
2: <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs>
4: Have, they have morphed into a non productive entity in our government with their activity, but they're still being paid, and us taxpayers are the ones footing the bill.
2: Well, yeah, of course they are.
4: Yeah. So, Was that your only point, is that they're being paid might. while they're on the job? Yeah, and they're not doing their jobs. I mean, they're not functioning in any productive capacity.
2: Well, that's you know you know yeah I mean that but that's you don't not pay them because somebody is in somebody's opinion they're not doing a productive job or functioning in a productive capacity. I mean you know they're on the job. We just I disagree with what they're doing. I find it to be unprecedented. I find it to be indefensible. But it's not like they're not actually on the job doing their job. Here's what I would say, John, uh, in 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 support of what you're saying. While they literally spend twenty four hours a day seven days a week, either planning or carrying out the coup d'etat against the president. What they're not doing is having hearings and votes on the USMCA. What they're not doing is having hearings and votes on improving American infrastructure. What they're not doing is having hearings and votes on how to get medic- uh, 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 prescription uh, uh, prices down, drug prescription prices down, and how to uh, work on American health care to improve it. I mean that's the one thing. So I, if that's what you mean, okay, I could I could I can see your point. Why are they being paid to not carry out the work that has been assigned them by the American people, right? Why are they being paid when they're not doing that work? But in reality, that work can be put aside while they carry out these investigations of it's oversight of the executive branches. They would call it so. You're never gonna you're never gonna you know get it. You know, make any headway on something like that, uh, other than just to kind of complain about it. But I do see your point. They're not doing their jobs as we need them to do them, but they're doing their jobs as they can legitimately argue that they are. They're saying their number one job is to protect and preserve the Constitution, and they, in in their bullcrap, uh, narrative that it's under attack by the President of the United States, and it's their duty to protect it. So that's the way that's going to go. All right, thanks for the call two one six nine zero one zero nine four five triple eight two eight one eleven ten. Right back after this.
0: It's the Bob France Authority here on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Into this house we're born, into this world
4: we're thrown.
2: So you have just two days left to vote we the Salem Culture Warrior of the Year. Voting ends tomorrow, October 31st, and we'll announce the winner in November. Uh, Salem took 500-plus nominees to the Salem Editorial Board, and we narrowed it down to six finalists based on the ability they have had to fight the good fight for the right reason. And One of the criteria to get nominated is not that they're doing the good things and the right things all the time in this culture war, but that they have suffered as a result. The slings and arrows of public discontent, sometimes professional uh, slings and arrows, sometimes financial reputations have been hit, all for standing up for the right thing because of their positions. The finalists, Candace Owens, former liberal Democrat, till one day she woke up in 2015 realizing everything she had been taught was a lie. She's now one of the leading black conservative- conservatives in America popular on the uh, uh, podcast of Prager U, and she is the leader of the, Bre- the Blexit Movement, which is the black exit from the Democrat Party. Alan Sears, leader of the Alliance Defending Freedom for more than 20 years, helping that organization fight the battle for religious liberty and winning countless court victories. Gary Sinise, the actor who came to fame mostly as Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump. He's been an Emmy, Golden Globe winner, uh, star on the Hollywood Walk of the Fame, but now uh, best known for his philanthropic work for the rights of veterans. Abby Johnson, one of the top managers of Planned Parenthood until that fateful day when she realized what the baby and the mother were really going through, and she became now one of the leading anti-abortion activists in America. Her movie, Unplanned, is still being shown around the world. Franklin Graham, not easy being the son of one of America's um, or of America's most famous preacher but Reverend Franklin Graham has forged his own identity as now leader of Samaritan's Purse a worldwide uh, worldwide relief organization that has saved the lives of thousands around the world through donations and aid grants and finally the sixth finalist is Charlie Kirk who started Turning Point USA when he was 18 today's 24 still a kid but he has chapters Turning Point USA chapters on over 1,200 college and high school campuses, convincing young people that the liberal leftist ways they have been taught since kindergarten run counter to the founding of this country. He's a fearless leader of the young conservative movement. And I got to tell you, any one of those is deserving of your vote. But my vote is going to Charlie Kirk for one reason and one reason only youth. Youth matters. No disrespect to any of the others, obviously, because they're all heroes, in my view. But we need to reach these kids on the high school campuses. We need to reach them on the college campuses. We need something to counter what they're being indoctrinated in by their leftist professors, teachers, administrators, etc. And this is going to be the key to winning the future, is getting these young people having their eyes open now. Charlie Kirk's organization, Turning Point USA, is integral in that effort. All right, let me get a call here from John on AM 1420, The Answer. Hi, John, you're on the air. Go ahead.
4: Yes, uh, good morning. I am planning to write a letter to the president suggesting basically that he would be able to grow the Trump train, so to speak, uh, more and get more people on board if when somebody of note insults him or, or uh, disagrees with him, he doesn't go down the insult road. But I've talked to many of my conservative friends who they like President. they really like him a lot but mm-hmm. they are bothered as i am by the way he presents himself sometimes now if you were to write a letter of that note trying to uh, uh, encourage the president to change things up in this way what would you write or how would you begin it or whatever you want to share
2: john i've kind of offered those very same suggestions um in response to some of his tweets on the air, because his tweets are very insulting to people. But I've come to realize something through the, the last three years. Um, I don't know that it would do any good. Talking with Bill O'Reilly, especially uh, last week on this program, Bill O'Reilly has known Donald Trump for 30 years. Um, he made it very plain. Donald Trump doesn't care what you think about him. He doesn't care if you are bothered by his insulting nature. He doesn't care if you are bothered by his gruff, brash uh, language. He doesn't care. He's going to say what he feels, and his unfiltered expressions, he believes, are what make him unique and what made him president. And I have to say, over the last three years, there may be something to that. When did he take off in the Republican primaries? When did he really take off and ascend to become the front runner, from being a joke of a candidate to being the possible winner and, the, and eventually the nominee? When he started being extraordinarily insulting of people on, the, on his own stage. When he started insulting little sweaty Marco Rubio. And he insulted Ted Cruz as being lying Ted, which I still have a problem with. But it worked for him. When he started insulting, you know, Jeb Bush, low-energy Jeb, and then, you know, uh, <clears throat> um, as far as uh, uh, insulting Hillary Clinton, you know, uh, you know his, his comments about creepy Uncle Joe uh, and, and sleepy Joe, sleepy Joe Biden, crooked Hillary. I mean, his insulting nature, every time he kind of comes out with that, he, he climbs in the polls. People like the fact that he's not a prim and proper, dressed-up, politician giving political speak. He speaks like you and me. Well, maybe not all of us, because some of us aren't insulting like that on a regular basis, but it works for him. So I think if you were to write a letter to him, he would look at it and say, thanks, I'm good. And he would keep on doing what he's doing, because it has worked for him. I do understand your point. It is hard to hear sometimes. Sometimes it's cringeworthy. But the truth is, it works for him. And What's an old lesson we always learned when we were growing up? If it isn't broke, don't fix it. And I don't think he's going to try to fix it. Thanks for the call. Let me get our time out here. We'll, talk, uh, we'll get some news, I should say. We'll talk to you coming up, as well as Dr. Warren Farrell. We're going to talk about turning little boys into little girls, perhaps even against their wishes. That story next on AM 1420, The Answer. 10.35, now the Bob Brands Authority continues on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, I want to pivot now to another story with this one out of Texas, one I've been telling you about a little bit toward the end of last week and earlier this week. Seven-year-old boy named James Younger is, uh, is a confused kid. Uh, and why he's confused depends upon who you ask. His mother says he's confused because, well, not confused, but he actually has clarity that he believes he's a girl. And she treats him as such. She dresses him in dresses, she paints his nails, she buys him clips for his hair, and is planning on giving him puberty blockers, hormones to stop him or hormone blockers to stop him from reaching male puberty so that he can be transitioned into a fully functioning girl, or at least as much as one can make one. If you listen to his father, James Younger, the seven-year-old, is being abused by the mother, who is, by the way, a pediatrician, who wants a daughter and instead has twin sons, and is convincing him that he is a girl. He has said as much on videotape for what you can take from a seven-year-old. The case has gone all the way up to the highest levels of government in Texas. The governor, Greg Abbott, ordering the attorney general to investigate the case uh, to make sure there isn't child abuse going on here. A judge has overruled a jury who said that the mom can make all of the decisions about the medical care of the young boy. And the father now has an equal fighting shot at fighting for his son. Joining us now to analyze this case is Dr. Warren Farrell, who is the author of a book we have discussed on this program before. It's called The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Uh, Dr. Warren Farrell, thank you for joining us from California here in Cleveland, Ohio. Good to have you back on our airwaves. How are you, sir? Oh,
4: it's, It's nice to be with you again.
2: It's certainly a pleasure to talk with you. Okay, let's talk about seven-year-old uh, Texas boy, James Younger. Um, and let's talk about, first of all, uh, the the parental rights aspect of all of this. We have often talked, you and I did, when we talked about your book, and I talked to a lot of other experts in this field about the importance of a father's um, presence in a young boy's life. And what a jury decided prior to the, the change in the story, as I just pointed out, was that the father has no rights whatsoever here. The mother, who is a pediatrician, can raise the boy, single, sole custody, and she can make all of the medical decisions. How dangerous would that be for this young man and for any other young boys in similar situations? Well,
4: well before I get into the boy crisis aspect of it and the importance of fathers, just the, uh, just what, what, is, what childhood is it is about the reason that children have parents is because the job of parents is ideally to parents helping the child make uh, become mature uh, go through puberty be able to make decisions based on long term and postpone gratification needs and desires rather than sort of short term um short short term wants or short term approval if your mother is giving you approval for being a certain way, which apparently this uh, mother is, who's by the way not the biological mother, she she did not. Um, this, this was an in vitro fertilization child um, and twins. Um, the and the and the mother is taking the child to um, to mo- movies that and uh, fantasizing the child being a female, and the, then the child's going to want to please the mother. And the father says, well, but when the child's around him, um, the child wants to be a boy. And so this is a classic example of the child really wanting to please the mother when she he is with the mother, please the father when he's with the father. But the very purpose of being a child um, and having parents is to escort you safely with love, stability, and discipline through all your growing up years until you're able to make your own decisions. So if, if a little uh, girl came to us and, said, and was being in, in the custody of a father, let's say, and the, and the girl said, Daddy, uh, that thirty-year-old man, I like him very much, and he wants to have sex with me. Um, uh, oh, but but, but I'm, I'm not big enough down there to have sex with him. Uh, would you give me, um, you know, some type of hormones um, so I can um, be able to have sex with him? We wouldn't even, you know, we would just the thought of that would make us sort of like we would, nobody would have trouble saying. Uh, that that was uh, a disgusting thought and decision, and we shouldn 't allow a child at seven years of age to be um, to to be making that type of, of um, uh, decision and so uh, the the problem is not somebody you know who 's thirty years of age saying uh, you or know, twenty years of age making this decision. The problem is <laughs> the, the child making this decision and the, so and, let and me let is, me
2: jump in here for a second and ask you this dr. Farrell um which is would be the more troubling um, aspect here? If the mother was convincing the child to be a girl, and as you pointed out, him wanting to please his mother, just doing what she says. Or if he really, truly does feel like a girl, and the mother then would be listening to his seven-year-old undeveloped mind, allowing him to make lifelong, life-changing decisions with respect to hormone blockers in order to facilitate his psychological uh, condition.
4: The second, the um, there's there's no problem with a child having fantasies. That's what a parent is for to you know, to escort your child through those fantasies and to hear them out and 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 to be there to support emotionally your child and let him or her go through various stages of approval. We have a part of our brain called the RCZ, which is the rostral cingulate zone. Every that that part of the brain was designed so that when you got approval. Um, your, your dopamine increase, that's your feel-good drug. So we all biologically are designed to feel good by getting approval and to feel uh, badly or depressed uh, when we get disapproval. And so a parent that's, that's giving a child approval for, be, for making a decision that needs to be made later in life is really, is really creating psychological abuse and physical abuse. The only thing worse than that would actually be giving the child the puberty blockers and beginning the process um, of, of making that type of change. And the dad is not saying, you know, I don't want to listen to the child's feelings. The dad is saying the child needs to grow up and become mature, a mature adult, and then we'll make a decision about that. So the, um, but the really amazing thing in this case is that the jury... Uh, voted 11 to 1 uh, in favor of the mother having sole custody, the mother who had this perspective and this parenting uh, style um, having sole custody of the child. It wasn't until the judge came in that there was even um, shared parenting. So now back to the, you know, the sort of your original question about the research. The research for the boy crisis, I you know, I started out when I when I submitted the book to the publisher, I had outlined 10 causes for the boy crisis, and every time I examined one cause after the other, I found that it was a secondary cause with one exception. The primary cause was the absence of the father. I found that children all over the world, including our ISIS recruits, ISIS recruits in the United States are about 90-some-odd percent males, but almost all of those males and the smaller percentage of female ISIS recruits are dad-deprived children. Um, that our prisoners are about 93% males, and about 90% of them are dad-deprived children. Um, we ha- we have our mass shooters; uh, they are about uh, 99% males, um, but 80 about 80% of them are dad-deprived children. And we get a, and so we have and males, especially who do not have dads, who have no male role model, and that, and when they begin to develop testosterone. That testosterone goes crazy looking for purpose, looking to be channeled. And without a male role model, uh, the boy often feels without purpose and, and usually without discipline. That one of the big differences between a mother and a father, we would really, this, these, these differences would probably be exaggerated in this uh, f- female's uh, mother's case because she's wanting the child to have anything she wants. Moms tend to be more in the direction on average than sometimes when it's reversed. Moms tend to go more in the direction of being very sensitive to their children, very caring about their children and saying, uh, sweetie, if you want to be, um, in this case, a-, a-, a girl, you go ahead, and we'll work with you to be a girl. Well, the problem is that the, when you give your child the dream, you then have to have the discipline to be able to fulfill that dream. Otherwise, you become disappointed in what you try to become. So the father, on average, is much more likely to be involved with uh, requiring the child to do what she or he needs to do to get what they want. So, for example, if the child um, wants to have ice cream, and the, the mother and father will both, both usually set boundaries exactly the same way. They'll say, you can't have that ice cream um, until you become um, until you finish the peas. And, and the children will, of course, try to have as few peas as possible before they get their ice cream. The right. difference between the testing styles of mom and dad is that, you know, the child will often say to the mom, uh, you know, some try to manipulate the mom and the dad uh, into, no, oh, it's been a tough day for me. Joey, you know, bullied me at school. Um, can I have my ice cream now? And the mom will say, oh, okay, sweetie, I guess that you've had a tough day at school. I'm not going to get into a big argument over a few peas. Okay, sweetie, you can have your ice cream. Whereas dad is much more likely to say, uh, sweetie, we have a deal here. The deal is you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas. If you don't want to have um, finish your piece, that's okay, but you can't have your ice cream. Oh, Dad, you're so mean. Mom's not like that. Well, you can continue whining and crying like that, and then there'll be no ice cream tonight or tomorrow night. And so the child who has that dream with the mom doesn't learn to be able to have the discipline to fulfill that dream to a greater degree than the other way around. And we have a classic case of this here. Where the mother is hearing is taking the child to fantasy type movies, where the where where the future is female, where girls are wonderful and boys are not so much so, and so the child and, and the child is obviously detecting the mother's desire for her for him to be a, a, a girl, and so she's uh, so he's trying to, to, to do what pleases the mom, uh, which is which is the easy route, but that's the exact opposite of what a good childhood needs, in addition to the fact that boys tend to have significant problems in more than 50 different areas that I've measured when I did the research for the boy crisis. And and because very few people understand what there is that dads bring to the family table uh, that leads to children doing so much better, but especially boys doing so much better when they have Let, a significant amount of Fair,
2: let's talk. Let's talk more about that part of this, because this this is this is as bothersome to me as anything else uh, with respect to the mother and what she is doing to the child, or allowing the child to do to himself at such a uh, you know a ridiculously young and and uh, impressionable age, is the fact that a jury said yeah. Go ahead, mom. You have all the power here. You can medicate this child. You can chemically castrate this child, block his puberty, et cetera, et cetera. Dad says nothing. You get no say in this. I, I, that's the part that bothers me because this is a high profile case, but this is a jury of, of peers. Um, and, and I, I'm, I'm troubled by the fact that it would seem that far too many Americans, our peers, would agree with this, that dad doesn't get a say here, and this is so devastating. Now, we could say for boys, because you're talking about the boy crisis, but for children in general, um, where um, fathers do not have an equal say in the way the kids are raised.
4: This You have never heard me on our show before, or any show, say boggles my mind. But this is what boggles my mind more than the mother's attempt to make this decision. Is that 11 out of the 12 jurors, um, presumably chosen with some type of um, equanimity by the lawyers of both mother and father? Um, 11 out of 12 would have this mother be the, not the, an equal parent. That would have been bad enough. But the, um, but a, the, the sole parent uh, for this child and to rule out and to push away uh, the father. Who was wanting to wait till the child got older to make a decision like this? Um, th- this is this shows you the the deep bias against fathering in the country, and so that brings us to a bigger issue. Um, I'm working now with the White House to uh, create a uh, next year. In fact, I'm working yesterday and the day before on a portion of President Trump's State of the Union message to introduce um, uh, 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 the boy crisis to the United States. But also to introduce the importance of fathers, because the average person doesn't know the nine or ten different um, differences between the way dads tend to do their dads, what I call dad style parenting, and moms tend to do mom style parenting. And so dads don't dads don't read in books or magazines. The that you know their roughhousing is something more than playing. That the roughhousing um, that the more father roughhouses and also set, and also sets boundaries. Uh, with the child the more the child is likely to be empathetic to their brothers their sisters and other people the more the child is likely to um, understand the distinction between being assertive and aggressive and so what i'm saying to the white house is that people need to understand the value of a father before uh, judges and juries make decisions like this because you can't expect a country to have no understanding of the value of a father they see ads constantly where is a mother and father and the father is a bumbling idiot or a fool or you know some way well intentioned but messes it up and so and this these images bombard us we 've gone sort of from father knows best to father knows less and or father knows best to father more less in the worst case scenarios and so we so this type of this type of impact um, is what the the residue is what we have in this 11 to one jury decision. And it's um, and this is not just true in the United States, by the way. All over the world, in the fifty-six largest developed nations, um, boys are falling behind girls in every um, every single academic subject, but especially in reading and writing. And as you probably know, reading and writing are the two biggest predictors of success.
2: Well, I'll tell you what. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, uh, Doctor Farrell. I'm. So, I apologize. I thought you were just pausing to make another point. Uh, we, we're out of time, but I want to say thank you so much because what you're saying, excuse me, what you're saying, particularly about uh, boys uh, and and girls, but but particularly boys who suffer without uh, father fatherly input and a father's role model and a father's advice and a father's counsel and guidance on a daily basis is staggering. That's what The Boy Crisis, your book, is all about. I'll remind people to pick this up if you have not yet read it, The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It, by Dr. Warren Farrell. And uh, this particular case in Texas might be an egregious one, but it is just one of many cases in which uh, fathers are losing custody and losing rights to help raise their children uh, and raise their sons, especially, and the impact that it will have on them going forward. Dr. Farrell, thank you so much for the great uh, conversation. I appreciate your insight. <laughs>
4: It's just a pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking
2: with you. Thank you very much, and likewise, sir. All right, it's 1051. We'll get a quick timeout and come back and wrap it up on AM 1420, The Answer.
0: Bob France, here on AM 1420, The Answer.
2: final segment coming up here. It's 1055. We'll get him one phone call, then a couple of very important announcements. TJ in Cleveland. Thanks for waiting, TJ. You're on the air, my man.
5: Yeah, you know, Bob, for them on the left that said this lieutenant colonel cannot be questioned because he's a highly decorated war veteran, yeah. let's not forget the swift bets of a few years ago. Oh, dozens, yeah. Dozens of highly decorated, one of them, a Medal of Honor winner that come out against John Kerry being the phony he was, Well, they attacked all of them. The dozens of them were attacked constantly by the left. So I don't want to hear them saying, we can't question this man. I mean, the the hypocrisy is too much. And I'll say one other thing. That guy that called you about Trump shouldn't be saying this or that. I doubt, seriously, this guy is a Trump supporter. You know, us Trump supporters are happy about one thing. He slaps back when slapped. And we got so tired of watching our President Bush and other ones getting slapped around and never do anything. At least now, we're hitting back, we're punching back, and I think real Trump supporters kind of really appreciate that.
2: Yeah, I, I like I said, I I I cringe sometimes too at some of the things he says, but I understand the reason why he's doing it. And I also, as I pointed out, recognized how much people liked it and how much people appreciated it, and how much Trump supporters, like I said, that really catapulted him to the front of the Democrat or the uh, Republican primary back in 2016, and ultimately gave him the presidency. And ultimately, it's why he's been successful as well. So yeah, you don't want to ask somebody to change something that's working for them. TJ, thanks for the call. I want to say two things. Announcement. Number one, we are down to just 15 tickets remaining. 15 tickets remaining uh, for the VIP dinner for the War for America Soul Tour on November 21st. With a VIP ticket, you get access. Well, first of all, you get a great dinner, but you get access to all of the hosts. You will have your picture taken with Hugh Hewitt, Dr. Sebastian Gorka, Peter Kersenow, and myself. First um, uh, in line for autographs, and more importantly, intimate conversation and socializing with the hosts so that we can talk about this War for America Soul. Then you will have that great dinner and, of course, be a part of the stage presentation. So 15 VIP tickets tickets remaining. Get yours now at whkradio.com whkradio.com Click on the War for America Soul Tour uh, banner at the top of the page. While you're there also take note of the um, uh, Barbecue, Brew, and Hugh event which is going on before the VIP dinner. It'll be a social hour specifically and exclusively with Hugh Hewitt at the Holiday Inn Rockside on November 21st. So get all of that information at the website. And while you're there this is my last announcement of the day. Save a baby's life. Click on the option line banner at whkradio.com and donate $75 to Heartbeat International to keep the option line open. If you've been listening to me all month, you know what we're talking about. Saving babies' lives is up to us because the government won't do it. The government funds Planned Parenthood, which takes babies' lives. And since it won't fund Heartbeat International to save babies' lives, that's where you and I come in. Give women an alternative to abortion. Keep those phone lines and option lines staffed and ready with professionals there to help guide them to a pregnancy resource center near them, over 2,700 affiliate locations, so that they can find an alternative to ending their baby's life. You can do so with a $75 tax-deductible donation. That's all we're asking. Please do it Today. Our appeal ends tomorrow. The need will go on, but our month-long appeal on behalf of uh, Babies and Heartbeat International ends tomorrow. Please do it today. Go to whkradio.com, click the option line banner. I beg you, you'll save babies' lives. Thanks so much for being a part of the conversation today. Mike Gallagher is next. We'll see you tomorrow.